Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and we're on episode 35, and this is the last part of our seven-week series on the Torah. So today we find ourselves at Deuteronomy, which literally means in the Greek, second law, and it does act as sort of a second retelling of the law. And so this is more from Moses' point of view. We're also going to kind of see Moses' farewell towards the end of this, and uh, just an interesting book altogether. It's sort of the passing of the torch to Joshua and that generation as well. Scott Frizzell will be back for his third crack at the Torah. He's taught us from Exodus and Leviticus, and now he's going to wrap things up with Deuteronomy. I'm very excited for this morning's class. Here's Scott. All right, so today we are finishing up our section uh, series on the Torah um, with the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a whole lot of repetition um, from what we've already heard, so we'll see how we can work through that. Um, but first, kind of resetting the stage, right? Kind of looking back at the four books that have preceded Deuteronomy. Um, kind of the link that pulls them all together, right, is the covenant that God makes with Abram in Genesis chapter 12. I'll make you into great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse whoever curses you, and all peoples on the earth uh, will be blessed through you. So kind of as we've gone forward from Genesis 12, uh, we've seen um, Abram's descendants turn into a great people, right? A large multitude compared to, you know, starting with uh, two old people who maybe didn't think they could have any kids, and now they've got an entire nation. Uh, we've seen God protect them and bless them uh, in Egypt. And then when things went south in Egypt, he's blessed them further by delivering them, taking them out, taking them to Sinai. We've seen him curse those who curse them uh, in what happens with the Egyptians through the Ten Plagues story. Um, and then, of course, we see at Sinai the receiving of the Ten Commandments and the law. Um, and then uh, kind of that's formalizing a process for them to grow closer to God, to kind of get back to that state from the garden from the very beginning in Genesis 1 by following those laws and purification rites. And then, of course, they're wandering all through numbers towards the promised land. So they've got their great nation. They're about to have their great land. And we uh, pick up with Deuteronomy right outside of the promised land. They're on the opposite side of the Jordan uh, waiting to go in. So real quickly, we will watch the Deuteronomy video by the Bible Project, and then uh, we'll get into it. Okay. So, um, in 1796, sorry, history moment, in 1796, George Washington is finishing his second term as President of the United States, um, and it's widely assumed that he's going to run again much until he dies, because he's the only person in the country that everybody likes, because um, he's been leading for a long time. Uh, he decides not to lead again uh, and to step down and retire because he thinks he doesn't want to die in office because that'll set a precedent that, you know, whoever's president serves till they're dead. I'm glad we didn't do that. Um, and so then uh, he gives this big farewell address. And in his farewell address, he has three major points. Sorry, this is like eighth grade history, chapter eight, section three. Um, so the three things that you're supposed to remember is that he warns the American people. He says, if we're going to have success as a nation, there's three things you don't need to do. And he says, you do not need to get entangled in foreign conflict. You do not need political parties. And you do not need a national debt. Um, and my kids are always laughing by this point because they don't understand a ton about current American context, but they know those are three things we haven't done 
especially well on. Um, but it's kind of ironic that the guy that everyone respects gets up and he gives the advice on the three things that we absolutely should not do. And within 10 years, we've done all of those things and continue to do all of those things. Um, and the same thing's kind of happening with Moses here. He gets up and he's got this big speech to the next generation, right? All the old generation has died because um, they're not permitted to enter the promised land. And he talks for a really long time uh, and gives them all these warnings and all these things they shouldn't do. But then like the video alluded to at the end, he kind of predicts that they're gonna go ahead and do all of those things anyway, um, which is incredibly ironic, but also I think makes a whole lot of sense we tend to know the things we're going to mess up at ahead of time. It's not like they surprise us. Like we know the hardest parts of being a Christian or serving God or, or any task we're doing, um, but that doesn't change the need to warn them about it. So when Moses is laying out this warning, I don't think it's anything that comes as a huge surprise to this rising generation. They haven't been alive for some of what happened the last 40 years. They were kids if they were alive, um, but they're not sitting there going, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. Like, we should definitely do that. Good idea, man. Like it's things they've heard, which is probably leading them to tune it out just a little bit. Um, but it, the struggles aren't changing at all. So when Moses is handing off to the next generation, uh, he knows that what they're going to experience is going to be the same uh, as what he's experienced. And if we were going to do the series all the way through the Old Testament, it would get incredibly repetitive, right? Because it's just the cycle goes on and on and on and on. So real quickly, I kind of want to look at two different points on Deuteronomy rather than kind of going through it section by section, because like I said, it would get really repetitive because a lot of this has been stated already in other books. First, I want to look at the, the narrative aspect of Deuteronomy, which is pretty much the last two chapters, the only time you get any new story. Uh, and then I kind of want to look at kind of the thematic significance of Deuteronomy and what that means, because uh, even though it's a lot of restating, it's not something that had to be written down like, they could have just said Moses gave a speech restating the law and then talked about him dying, but they didn't. Uh, so I think that probably means that there's some significance to all of that being restated uh, in the length and breadth that it is. So um, I think a few important things to kind of look at uh, throughout kind of this is the first section. So you kind of have the speech, which is the first 30 ish chapters of Deuteronomy, and then you have Moses dying. That's about it. Um, and in the speech, I'm going to draw out a few things that are kind of interesting, I think. And the first is that Moses is not super accepting of his errors in his speech. Um, you know, in Numbers, um, he strikes water. He hits the rock to bring water when he's supposed to speak to it. Um, and he even says uh, to the Israelite people assembled, you know, uh, he's angry at them because they're grumbling yet again. And he says, why must we bring you water from this rock? Kind of elevating himself with God. And after he does that, God says, because of this, you will not be able to enter the promised land. Um, yeah, you've been good and you've done some awesome stuff, but because you've elevated yourself with me, because you have not trusted in me and relied on me and given me the power to control, um, you're not going to get into the promised land. But when we revisit Deuteronomy, um, he kind of has a different story that he's taken when he's given the speech to all these newbies. Um, and one of the things he repeatedly goes is he keeps saying, you know, yeah, your parents couldn't come in because of their wrongs. And he says, and I will not be able to go in because of them, um, which is kind of an interesting phrasing if you think about it, because it seems kind of to have been totally his fault. Um, but this is in chapter one. Um, um, 1 verse 37, because of you, to the people, because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, you shall not enter it either, uh, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Um, 
And so I think it's kind of interesting that we've kind of had this, I mean, Moses really is kind of the hero of the Torah, right? He's the guy that always seems to be in the right. You know, he's the one who's dedicated to God. And when all the people are grumbling and falling away and turning on God, he's the one who's recentering them. And he's only got his one big, but one mistake, right? In the book of Numbers, when he kind of takes credit for something that God's going to do along with God. But I think it kind of serves a purpose when we're looking at this narrative in the way that he represents himself and in the way um, that uh, he dies in the end of the book that kind of serve to kind of lower Moses a little bit. It's kind of like they're being very careful in how they're handling Moses because you've got this really powerful figure who could easily become like someone that you kind of almost worship in a way, right? Um, but the way that he kind of fades out is, is very interesting, I think. So the first is kind of that he's uh, not totally repentant for his mistakes. Um, and then also uh, when he gets, so he gets to the edge of the promised land, he's given his big speech and he's warned everyone about all the terrible things that they should not do. Um, and he climbs up on Mount Nebo to kind of look out over the promised land. That's God's deal with him is that God will let him see the promised land. Uh, he just won't be able to enter it. So he kind of looks over the promised land um, and then he dies. And what's interesting, uh, what Deuteronomy tells us that the very end of Deuteronomy, um, this is 34 verse 4. Five, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Uh, Moses, was taken, Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Um, I think it's significant that God takes Moses up on a mountain away from all the Israelites for kind of his last moment. And I think it's also very significant that when he dies, God buries him up there on the mountain. Um, there's not a, I could really see a shrine to Moses existing if that hadn't happened, right? So it's kind of interesting the way that mo the end of Moses' story is written, right? Um, very much uh, the narrative up to that point suggests that he's going to be some really big figure kind of for all time. And he is certainly, right? It's not that he's not important. Um, but it's very much wrapped up in a way that really minimizes him. Uh, it doesn't minimize his contributions, but it minimizes him as a, as a person, I think. And I think that's significant because um, kind of we're kicking off this idea of the covenant. Maybe the covenant is about to be realized, um, but at the same time, it's a very swift handoff to Joshua. They're not going to carry Moses' bones around like in the Ark of the Covenant or anything like that. Um, I think that's I think that's pretty important. Um, so Moses dies. Joshua takes over. Moses first utters the phrase that I kind of associate with Joshua more in my head: "The be strong and courageous." Right. So Moses tells that to the people. Uh, he says, "Be strong and courageous. The Lord has given you this land." Then he goes up the hill or the mountain, sorry, and he dies. Joshua takes over, and they get ready to go in, but they still don't go in within the Torah. Um, so I think that's all important. But then if we look at the other aspect of it, kind of the thematic aspect um, of Deuteronomy, okay? So what is the point of all this stuff they're saying? Um, there's a whole lot of repetition. Like if you read through it, you'll, you'll recognize some of the stranger stuff from Leviticus or Numbers or Exodus pops back up again. So you get to read about it all over again. Um, he retells the Ten Commandments. He revisits the golden calf, okay? All these big kind of high notes from throughout that story, he's sure to kind of slide in there as well. Um, but kind of the overall, it all kind of links together, as the video might have suggested, in the Shema. 
right? So this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this kind of encapsulates everywhere they're going with restating all of those laws. So, hear, O Israel, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, okay? So the Shema is a daily prayer uh, given by most Jews morning and evening. It's usually uh, recited at a child's birth. It's recited at someone's death. Um, the goal would be that if you know you're about to go, you would be uttering the Shema um, as you die. Um, so it's kind of an incredibly important verse in Judaism and also for Christianity, right? Because when uh, the teachers of the law try to trap Jesus and they say, what's the most important command of the Old Testament? This is where he goes. This is number one. And I think kind of growing up in Sunday school, right, you kind of hear in Christianity, right, well, of course, right, love Lord your God, you do that, everything else makes sense, and then love your neighbor is number two. Um, but it's also interesting because this wasn't something that he pulled out and everyone had gone, oh, yeah, I remember that verse. That's pretty good. Like he's saying the prayer that they all say every single morning. And the fact that that uh, tradition uh, is followed within Judaism is going to suggest, right, that this has great importance within their faith. Um, but the prayer that's uttered, this is only the first part of it, actually. So when they recite it, they'll recite this and they'll recite the verses after it later on, and then a passage from Numbers in the middle. So there's a whole chunk of it that goes along with it. But I think the second part kind of helps us kind of make sense of the rest of Deuteronomy and what they're doing with it. So right after it says that, it says, these commands that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorframe of your houses and on your gates. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about this in Leviticus, right? The idea that these traditions start to pop up. People taking it very literally, right? Carving scripture into their doorframe or sometimes like putting papers or blocks that have them on there within their doorframe. You see very um, Orthodox Jews will kind of have tassels with scripture on them as part of their clothing or on their arms or in their hair, uh, depending on kind of tradition within that. So there's certainly a literal aspect of that, but I think there's also um, kind of this idea that all throughout the Torah, right, the story is very much one of the Jews being told to do something by God, doing it for a very short period of time, as Kevin spelled out last week with the timeline, right, and then screwing up pretty majorly in some form or fashion, uh, and then trying to get right with God again. Um, and I think the idea behind the Shema is very much trying to undercut that, right? If you have these commandments on your hearts at all times, they're impressed upon your children. You're sitting, when you're talking about them, when you're at home, when you're at work, when you're sleeping, the first thought when you wake up, that's not going to happen, right? Of course, that's kind of impossible uh, to maintain that all of the time. But I think that's very much the idea of what he's bringing out in Deuteronomy. Um, some of that doesn't make sense to us when we look at what happens in Deuteronomy because there's a whole passage about marrying foreigners, which seems kind of out of place, right? Like, don't marry the Edomites because this will happen and this will happen and this will happen. Uh, there's actually a section about fair fighting, which is kind of humorous, uh, what you can and cannot hit uh, when you're fighting a man. And um, check that out. It's great. Um, there's uh, aspects about uh, inheritances and celebrating holidays, right? And all these things that when you look at them without putting them in the framework of the Shema, it's like, why are we talking about this? Like, especially if you're pulling random verses to like, why does the Bible say this? Like, but this idea is that he, um, God is trying to get them to guard against those influences that might discourage them or might be the small amount that leads them off into a different route. Uh, we kind of see the same thing uh, later on actually from Paul in Romans, uh, in Romans chapter 12, when he's talking about uh, 
love. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Uh, and then similarly in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 24, right smack in the middle of this whole section of really strange laws about millstones and marriage and leprous diseases and all kinds of stuff. There's this great sentence it's, uh, when it's explaining why punishments are kind of harsh for these things. He says, you must purge the evil from among you. Okay, and I love the thought of that. Like every instance of evil or of wrongdoing, no matter how minor, it must be completely purged from among you. Because if you allow even a small little bit to sit and to fester, right, that's not going to lead you anywhere positive. That's all it's going to take for you to, within like a week, be way somewhere you're not supposed to be, right? It's kind of like uh, one small mistake, and then one month later you're like, oh, I didn't realize I was going to end up there. It's kind of like what they say in... Uh, youth group when you're growing up and you're supposed to set your lines in your relationships, right? Like, don't cross it, because if you do, you won't uncross it. Uh, and it's the same kind of thing, like it extends past physical relationships, right, in all of our encounters. Um, so while many Jews take the Shema quite literally, right, putting it on uh, their face or on their clothing or on their door frames, uh, we very much have the same encouragement to find some way to take this law and internalize it within ourselves, right? The fact that Christ pulls this up as the most important commandment, right? So for us as Christians, if we're looking back at the Torah and we're saying, what does the Torah mean to us? Well, this is the thing that Christ said was most important within the Torah. So it must be something significant to us about guarding ourselves, uh, even if we're not going to follow whether or not to eat shellfish, right? The idea of how we live and how we live with the law within us is vital. Um, about a week ago, I was in the great state of Iowa. Um, anyone from Iowa? Great. Iowa smells like cow poop everywhere. Like, I'm not exaggerating. Um, like, we got off of the van when we finally got there, and it was smelled so bad I got back on the van and closed the doors, even though I'd been on the van for like 16 hours. Like, I can't do it. And I thought, maybe it's just like the part of town I'm in. But no, it was everywhere. Anytime I stepped out. Anyway, that wasn't really relevant, but it was important to me. Um, so, I was up in Iowa because we were at a conference. Uh, we took a group from Harding to go and observe this new teaching framework. I don't know the right word for it. Um, so one of our big things as a Christian school is what does a Christian school look like? Like what does Christian education mean? Does that mean that you get a Bible class? Does that mean you get a Bible class and your teachers are Christians? So maybe in the hallway they'll talk to you about God? Like what does math look like at a Christian school? Well, probably like math at a non-Christian school. So the idea behind this conference was, well, let's make that a little bit different. And it was really fascinating strange at the time. But anyway, so uh, one of the things that was kind of neat about it was they, uh, the organizers of this conference, they took what they call these eight to ten through lines, okay, these ideas of things that you can see in the world that link your Christianity, your faith with whatever you're doing. And they said, you may not see that through eight, all eight through lines in everything you do, but there's an idea that in everything you do, you can at least find one of them. Okay, and that you can see something that you are doing that is serving Christ or representing Christ in, in what you do. So one, and the phrases sound kind of clunky, so I apologize for that. But one of the phrases was, for example, an order, or an order creator, order observer. Ooh, now I'm getting fuzzy. Uh, and this idea that when you look at the world, you can see the order with which it's created, right? You can see the beauty of God's order and creation. And as we were visiting with teachers who'd used this framework, all the math teachers were like, oh yeah, this is the one that we use, because this makes sense, right? Because math is order-based, right? And it shows the beauty of God's creation. But there are a lot of them that kind of weave through all these different subjects. So if you're sitting in my history class, 
I was picked my favorite was Justice Seeker, right? Because that's the story of history to me is looking at all these unjust moments. Like, well, you look at the story and you say, okay, how does this, uh, how can we look for justice in this or how can we bring about justice from this today? And that's how we're taking what we know from our relationship with Christ and making sure that we're putting it everywhere we go. Anyway, so all that to say, there's a long story for this, um, but I'm sorry. Uh, so the idea was we were listening to this student panel on the last day of the conference. Um, and as a high school teacher, a lot of times you're kind of wondering, like, do the kids really buy into this? Or are they just kind of like rolling your eyes every time a teacher's like, I want you to be a justice seeker. And they're like, but it was really interesting because they didn't. Now, there were some different reactions. They gave us a nice mix of students, you could tell. Um, and so there were some different reactions. But one of the things that I found most interesting was they were asking these seniors who are about to graduate. They're like, okay, all this language that you guys have used the last like three years with this new framework, like, is it important to you? Does it mean anything to you? Are you gonna use it or think about it after this? Or was it just kind of something your teachers did that drove you crazy for three years or that you just kind of rolled your eyes about? And this one student raised his hand and he's like, no, well, I'm gonna go to business school after this. And I, these words and thoughts being impressed upon me every day from all of my teachers and from my parents who've been looped into this process has convinced me that as I set out into the world of business, I can be, um, a justice seeker, right? That the world is corrupt and that I can serve something different in what I'm doing. And then at the same time, there's another girl who works at a flower shop part-time and she was talking about how she was a creation protector. I don't remember all the words, sorry. But how she was serving God when she made floral arrangements. And I was like, please tell me more about that. <laughs> like, I'm curious how you logically see yourself as serving Christ, like as being a Christian, serving Christ, other than just, well, I was friendly to all of my customers. And if anyone gave me an opening, I talked to them about God. She's like, well, no, because uh, when I plant these uh, things and I make these arrangements, I'm getting to enjoy the creation that God gave. I'm getting to display it for others and protect it as he commands us. She's like, uh, and I'm showing the beauty of God to others, whether or not they see it. Now, on the one hand, all that's just kind of language that's wrapping something up, right? We can all be doing all those things. And girl from Iowa who's doing floral decorations isn't doing a whole lot different in her actions than a floral decorator in Memphis who doesn't know anything about this framework and hasn't visited the stinky Iowa community where I was, right? But the idea in the end is that it is a mental aspect, right? When he says in the Shema, these should be on your hearts and minds all the time, right? And he says, put them on your doorframe and your tassels and all that stuff. Um, maybe that's what makes sense to them at the time, but to us at the time that may not make as much sense, or maybe it does for you, I'm not sure. Um, but the idea that it's always present, right? That it hasn't left. Um, even when you're doing something that doesn't seem to be objectively Christian, right? So I think for us, kind of our big takeaway from the Shema, right, is this idea that um, our best effort to be reunited with God, right, our best effort to follow the law is to have that on our minds so that even though it might sound kind of clunky when you first start thinking about it, and I think it does, um, that it gets to the point where it is kind of natural, right? You do something enough and you don't think too much about it. But like I know when I'm sitting in a, even though I work at a Christian school, like when I'm sitting in my office, like dealing with a kid who broke some rule, I'm not even always thinking like, how is this in a Christian framework? I'm just thinking, okay, he threw a bucket of slime at someone, we need to have a conversation about this, right? But this idea that everything you're doing is seen through that lens, I think that's the main message that Moses is trying to bring out to people. He says, we've been on this journey for a long time together with me and your parents, this older generation, 
And this is the thing that we're taking away, right? That keep it on the front, on the front of your minds at all times. Uh, don't let it stray. So I think in that sense, um, the Shema is kind of a perfect ending note to the Torah. It's like the video said, right? the Torah ends without actually going into the promised land, which seems like incredibly let, letting, let down, right? Because uh, we've been waiting for this moment for five books since the covenant was made, and we still don't see it fulfilled, although we do in the next book if you stick around for Joshua. Um, but this idea that uh, this is the main thing we're taking away, right? This is the main thing we've learned through all these laws, right? The laws are important. The laws provide a route back to God, just in the same way that Jesus commands and Jesus' sacrifice provide a route back to God. But if Moses is going to take one thing away from all those 120 years, that's it. So I think that's important. Okay, so um, last thing, kind of as we kind of pull together the last little bit of the Torah um, and kind of look at what it means to you. Um, how are we doing on time? Okay, good. All right. Humor me, if you will. Will everyone stand up? Thanks. I appreciate it. If you absolutely hate this, you can make fun of it later behind my back. That's okay. But for now, please, with someone else in the room, will you get back to back? You don't actually have to be touching them, but just like not facing someone like partner. If you need a group of three, that's fine too. I know the math won't work out perfectly. Uh, so yeah, find a person. Lindsay Gentry's not. Oh, I'm not calling anyone out. I'm not calling anyone out. Like I said, I appreciate everyone for giving it a shot. Thank you very much. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to think about it for 20 seconds without looking at the person that you're partnered with, right? And then after 20 seconds, I'll have you turn around, and I want you to each share your answer to the question, okay? Believe it or not, when we've done this before, it's really helpful not to see the other person's face when you're thinking about the question because uh, it really changes it, okay? So... Um, First question, uh, how do you find the Torah, any of the stuff we've looked at if you haven't been here the whole time, how do you find the Torah relevant to Christians today? How do you find the Torah relevant for Christians today? So take 20 seconds and think for that for just a second. All right, go face to face and share with your friend, go. All right, just another moment, so be sure everyone's gotten to talk. All right, so now, now it gets more awkward because I'm separating couples. Now you have to go find one more person who's not who you were just with. Back to back with one other person. I know, it's awkward, I'm sorry. Thank you. One more person, yeah. Back to back, back to back. We got a new question. New question. Yeah, back to back again. No face to face right now. Back to back. Back to back. Yeah, that's why you chose him. You wanted to hear the wisdom from David. Okay. Last question. All right. Uh, so we talked for a moment there about kind of what, what you saw as relevant for Christians in the Torah, but now for yourself. Okay. We've spent seven weeks. Is that right? Seven weeks? Yeah. Seven weeks on the Torah. 
What do you take away for you? Okay, what sticks out to you as something you're taking away from the tour? 20 seconds to think. All right, face to face, go. All right, just a few more seconds, just a few more seconds. All right, tell your partner thank you. Give him a high five and come sit down. Sorry, that was my history moment. That's the classroom, I apologize. You don't have to do that. Go ahead and sit back down real quick. So many great thoughts. All right, real quickly now. Uh, without giving us a name, you don't have to throw anyone under the bus specifically, but does anyone want to share something that they heard, not something that they said, but something that they heard from someone else uh, about uh, how the tour is relevant to us as Christians? At a room this big with this many people, surely we've got the answer already, right? You're not talking about yourself. All you do is throw someone else under the bus. Reminds us of God's faithfulness. Okay. Reminds us of God's faithfulness. We definitely have seven weeks of that. What else? I think it's a reminder that this is part of our story as Christians as well, mm -hmm. instead of just kind of demarcating the New Testament, studying right. it. Right, right. Tells us our story as Christians, right? Because there's so many parallels and similarities, like it all flows together so well when you get deep within it, when you're not looking at random verses that sound really weird out of context, right? Anything else? Yes, absolutely need for a savior because there's no way anyone's keeping all those laws, right? That's certainly the state of things when Jesus shows up on the scene in the New Testament, right? All these laws that no one's been able to keep. Well, and the people who supposedly have been keeping in the Pharisees, right? They're not really following the spirit of them. So it's kind of an impossible scenario there. All right, I won't make you report on what anyone said they're taking away, but I hope you have something good in your mind, either that you brainstormed there or that someone else brainstormed. Um, I love the tour, so I love going through it over and over again because I think uh, there are so many parallels for us. Um, and I think, it's like I said earlier, right, when Jesus pulls out the Shema as kind of the most important command from the Old Testament, and you look at that today, it's pretty easy to see why maybe that would still be super important. So uh, that's all I've got. So, Kyle. Okay, so I am actually pretty sad that the Torah has come to an end. It sort of feels like, uh, you know, like Lord of the Rings, you watch the three movies and then it comes to an end, or maybe your favorite TV show, it wraps up with the fifth or sixth season, and it's just sort of like, uh, I don't know, like mildly depressing feeling, like, well, the story has ended. Of course, the story doesn't end there. It continues on into Joshua and Judges and Ruth and so on and so forth, and then, of course, it ends up heading into the New Testament and then continuing on until today, God has not ended. The story has not ended. It continues, of course. 
and then someday the story will end and then we'll live in heaven for eternity and so I guess in that sense the story really never does end so hey no need to be depressed right um, but this series has ended I think it's been really great and uh, illuminating for me at the very least thanks again to Scott for doing an awesome job I called him sort of our MVP of the Torah uh, it's playoff season right now, so I'm in, in that kind of mindset. But uh, he really carried this series for us doing three of these seven lessons, so thank you to Scott. Uh, we'll head into a new lesson starting next Sunday. This will be on Ravi Zacharias's uh, DVD and uh, also a book that he wrote um, called Jesus Among Secular Gods. So we'll be looking at different ways of having faith or different religions, as it were, things like atheism, secularism. Um, we'll look in, at some Far East religions and some things and see how those thought processes compare to that of Christianity. So I think it'll be a really awesome series, not exactly how many weeks we're doing there. Uh, I think five, um, and I'm looking forward to that for sure. So we'll be back next Sunday. If you're in the Memphis area, 10 a.m. Sunday morning, we'd love to have you here with us. So I hope this is a wonderful week for you. And uh, I just hope that God richly blesses you this week and that you reflect Him with your life. And we will see you next time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.